0: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hash. You are watching us on Coindesk TV and listening on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sanasi. We're joined today by Sandali Handagama, Will Foxley, and Adam B. Levine. Sandali, some crazy news coming out of the DOJ this morning. What's going on?
2: Yeah, Jen, breaking news, Uh, the US Department of Justice has charged former Coinbase product manager Ishan Wahi and two others, his brother and an associate on allegations of wire fraud and insider trading today. The Department of Justice called it the first ever crypto insider trading tipping scheme. So Ishan Wahi apparently started working at Coinbase starting in October 2020 as a product manager assigned to Coinbase asset listing team. The DOJ press release says that on at least 14 occasions, starting in June, 2021, and continuing through April, 2022, Ishan Wahi knew in advance what crypto assets Coinbase was planning to list and the timing of Coinbase's public announcements of those listings. He is accused of tipping off his brother, Nikhil Wahi, or associate Samir Romani so that they could place profitable trades in those crypto assets in advance of Coinbase's public listings announcements. They allegedly racked up around $1.5 million in realized and unrealized profits from the trades. And the document says they also used a number of accounts on centralized exchanges in other names, as well as anonymous Ethereum wallets to try and move and conceal the funds. So the whole thing was discovered in an incident back in April when someone tweeted that an Ethereum wallet had bought thousands of dollars worth of a token about 24 hours before the listing was published by Coinbase. The trade was done by uh, Ramani, according to the document and Coinbase said it was investigating the incident quickly after the tweet crazy stuff so who wants to take a stab at it first <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah i'll I'm gonna go, like I will. go for
3: it <laughs> <laughs> no this is a super wild story this is breaking news so yeah. i was just reading it for the first time a second ago and like wow what a story so the twitter account that's associated with this apparently it was crypto cobain who know because it was kobe he is well known within the crypto space pretty big guy at this point almost going into like influencer slash celebrity status for crypto people out there. And he's been tweeting a little bit about Coinbase and their random asset listings for a while now. And this one seems to have paid off bigly. Coinbase has been listing a lot of random assets, like random tokens that nobody quite gets why they're listing them. That's very different from their past where they were very strict about what assets they were going to list. And in this case, it seems like they got a little sloppy. They had someone on the team who shouldn't be there. And that person was insider trading. As far back or as just around the corner, April. You know That's not that long ago. This was happening pretty recently. Been doing it for quite a while. The story gets really complex. If you go into the DOJ website and read some of the press release, Romani tried to flee the United States after Coinbase confronted him. He bought a one-way ticket to India. The FBI stopped him before he could board that flight. He sent pictures of all the interactions with Coinbase to the other two suspects, trying to get them to leave, tell them to like flee, go international as well. It seems one of them is still at large and one person has been taken into custody. And they took about $1.5 million in realized gains from all of this activity, which is a decent payoff. But when you're looking at 20 years, which is what the DOJ is pressing right now, not sure it's quite worth it. Jen, to you.
1: Yeah, $1.5 million between three people in return for 20 years in prison just doesn't seem to make sense to me. What I took away from this story is just how quick crypto Twitter is to identify what's going on in this industry, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I mean, we talk so much about regulatory clarity, right? And I think that we're going to start getting this clarity in the way that we're seeing this story unfold. I don't think we're going to see, you know, rules written nicely and presented to the industry and DOJ or regulators are going to be like, these are the rules, follow them. I think we're going to see people be made examples of people who are doing shady things. And I think that that's how we're going to get clarity quicker. I don't think that's necessarily the right way, but it really seems like we're seeing this time and time again. Someone at a large company does something that's not good and they're made an example of, and that's how we know, you know, we shouldn't do that again, Adam.
4: Yeah, it is actually a really interesting story and one of the kind of the most interesting differences as far as I am aware is that from this compared to the OpenSea incident that we had a couple of months ago is that it looks like Coinbase probably actually brought this to the attention of the Department of Justice or at least took some action to pursue this. Whereas with the OpenSea thing, I didn't get the vibe from reading the DOJ's release that that was the case. I got the vibe more that OpenSea had fired the guy publicly because of the thing. And then they had reacted based on this event happening, but not necessarily at the request of the company. Whereas with Coinbase, it seems like they discovered this internally and then started to take action. And again, like if you're fleeing the country, right, like that's a bad look. It's not a great way to make sort of your case (laughs) around all of these things. So not great there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely not good. And then the other thing that jumps out at me about all of this is that when we're talking about these types of like thefts and stuff like that, look at the scale and the danger that this person put themselves in by doing this inside a centralized company versus, you know, somebody who compromises a smart contract, right? Like literally, you can fail at compromising a smart contract and still wind up with a bounty of, you know, $10 million giving the rest of it back. Whereas these guys, you know, chances are very good based on their behavior and the allegations made so far that they will, in fact, see substantial repercussions for this. And the dollar amounts are just pennies compared to what we typically see in, you know, a crypto compromise. So I think it's a very interesting story for a bunch of reasons. Just to look at the exchange listing process for
3: Coinbase over the last six months has been really interesting, really over the the entire bull market, right? Just random tokens being listed and makes you wonder about like the internal process here. But Adam, I think you have your finger right on the pulse, correct? They caught this a little bit earlier and they're paying attention to crypto Twitter as well, which crypto Twitter seems to have this self-righteous tendency to correct everyone as much as it can. And so they were identifying that coinbase was listing these random tokens they saw it as an opportunity for someone inside coinbase to potentially cause harm to the industry and then coinbase noted that looked at the transaction history and it's all there it's all on chain right it's very easy to look at this and from there you can sort of figure out whose wallet is whose right it said in the press release that this was an anonymous wallet well, nothing's really anonymous with any sort of blockchain application you can basically figure it out you just need the address ip address make the time zones line up and things are pretty simple. Sunderlay, give it back to you for final thoughts on this one, though.
2: No, well, that was exactly what I wanted to say, just how crypto Twitter works. And, you know, there's a lot of noise, but it works out sometimes as this proves. But Jen, you had your hand up, so I'm going to pass it to you before we wrap.
1: Yeah, just to Adam's point, I am curious if I actually think we're going to see more centralized exchanges looking for bad actors internally. I think centralized exchanges, especially in the United States, want to show regulators that they are doing the right thing, that they are abiding by laws and that they are interpreting the laws that already exist in a fair way. So that should something come up that falls in that gray area that we talk about so often, regulators might be a little bit more lenient with them since they have shown that they are good law abiding centralized exchanges. So I think, you know, if you're doing something shady and you work at a centralized exchange, probably stop.
4: Well, it's it's just, it's just, it's just not in their best interest, right? (laughs) Like whether you're talking about the OpenSea situation, you're talking about the Coinbase situation, or I would be surprised if there weren't significant shenanigans of this type going on in many other exchanges, because the opportunity has been there and the downside has been very limited, Mm -hmm. but this doesn't benefit a company like Coinbase doesn't benefit the companies that these people work for. So again, like there's a strong incentive for them to stamp out this behavior in as public a way as possible to try and prevent anybody else from doing it. But it's time to move on to our next story. Will, you've got that one.
3: I got you. More uplifting story than someone going to prison for insider trading. Let's talk about Bitcoin adoption in the global south. Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z have put together a fund initially backed by 500 Bitcoin, and they've chosen one of the founding partners for this program first in Africa. Vladimir Formene is going to be leading up development specifically for the Bitcoin SDK. It's going to be like a software package that enables people to work with Bitcoin and Lightning. This is a pretty interesting development just because of where Africa is in terms of technological adoption. Jack Dorsey has made a lot of comments and even has plans, as far as I know, to still move to Ghana and work with the tech sector there, which is vibrant and growing. But this money and this program itself is built around the concept of bringing more people into Bitcoin and then also decentralizing Bitcoin by bringing coders from different parts of the world into the community. Adam, I actually want to throw the story up to you for your first take. Since you've just been around the block so long with Bitcoin and crypto in general, there's been a decent sized shift. Bitcoin was initially like very westernized, Western Europe, United States, even just like California based. And it's shifted. It's changed. We're seeing a lot of adoption in different countries. We're seeing a lot of the volume for significant projects actually happening overseas. I can think of a bunch of projects off the top of my head, like Axie Infinity, Stablecoin Developments, and then El Salvador, obviously, with Bitcoin. So we've seen a lot of changes. It's cool to see this on the coding side, though, like the implementation side, as opposed to just like the exchange of value side. Throw it up to you, though.
4: Yeah, it has gone through a lot of changes over time, right? The community has changed a lot. But the thing that it's typically done is it's broadened, right? It's that it started off as a relatively small group of people who either were so disenfranchised by the existing system that they would use something that probably wouldn't work, but it wound up working. And then on the other side, you had people, you know, these days who are coming in because they see that this is something that actually has momentum. So it's, it's kind of fundamentally different. And what you find in new technology adoption is that people who have sort of the most bandwidth to take dumb risks, spend too much money and spend too much time on technology that probably isn't going to work tend to be the people who do it. So that kind of explains the early days of this. You know, now as crypto sort of goes broad and as the macro conditions that sort of were predicted by it, you know, in terms of why you would need something other than a, a typical government money, you know, as that becomes more of a widespread thing, I think that this is a trend that we'll see accelerate significantly. I think that there's another interesting element to this story, which is specifically that becoming a Bitcoin developer isn't really a process, right? Like it's something where you do it. And you'd need to typically be able to support yourself without an income because you're going to be doing that instead of the other thing. Right. And so early on, sort of in the life cycle of development and Bitcoin, Ethereum, other places too, but I I think Bitcoin sort of the most, you saw this phenomenon of corporate sponsorship of uh, specific developers. And there was a lot of pushback against that. And I think that there will be some pushback as we see more of it going forward, but I actually think that it's totally fine. (laughs) I like the kind of corporate sponsorship model because it means that you can see whose interest a person is working in to the extent that they are working in anybody's interest, right? And it sort of also broadens the pool of people who are vested in the success of the ecosystem and who have different conflicting interests oftentimes, who then make it so that it's less likely that you know, something that's wanted by a narrow group of people is gonna be rammed through. And instead you get this, you know, well, if we don't all agree, then just ain't nothing gonna happen. So more people means just ain't nothing gonna happen. And in Bitcoin, I really like that. I think that that's an important part of it. Jen, I saw your hand up, what are you thinking here?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting to look at Fomene's background, right? So he talks about there being a divisive 2018 election in his homeland. Then there was civil unrest in Nigeria where locals were protesting police brutality. And then he said the straw that broke the camel's back was the consistent devaluation of Cameron's Central Africa franc. And so I think that the industry can, can maybe learn a lesson from this story, right? If you want to go and develop in areas, it makes sense to invest in developers who've experienced the pain points, who have seen how the thing that they are developing can help their communities. And I think that comes back to education, right? We talk so much about education, especially in underdeveloped areas. Well, if you have people who are from that area who are help, who are helping to build out the infrastructure, well, then they're the ones who can go back and contribute to that education. And we've created. Now, a cyclical ecosystem that is very different than the one that we so often talk about here in the West. And so I think this is really, really smart. And for anyone who's trying to get into these areas, invest in the people in those areas because they really understand the problems that the technology is going to solve. So I think that this is awesome. But Adam, I saw your hand go back up.
4: I'm going to be really quick here. I just can't not. So what I love about what you just said there is that that is classic decentralization theory, right? When you look at a centralized system, a centralized system is one that has all the power vested in the center and it makes decisions for the fringes of the network, right? The rules are either, you know, all the same for everybody or different, but they're determined by the smartest people, not by the people who it affects. Decentralization is the opposite of that. It's the idea that intelligence really lives at the edge of the network. And while in the past, we needed centralized coordination, you know, through corporations and stuff like that, new technologies make it so we actually don't and we can have our cake and eat it too with a centralized structure that's neutral while still having people be able to really have control over the decisions that affect their individual lives. So very, very happy to see that. And I think that is the important trend that you've identified there, Jen. Sundali.
2: Yeah, do I don't agree with you. And I wanna come back to the point you made about compensation. I think that's going to be key here. In addition to education, of course, one of the reasons why tech companies move to some of these countries in Africa and Asia is because you can find talented people in tech for cheap, right? And I think that part of Bitcoin, you know, being able to join the Bitcoin network and build it out, compensation will play an important part in it. And that is also a place where, in addition to bringing them into a decentralized network and having more diverse developers be a part of that network, you are also paying them fairly. So I would like more detail on how they plan to, kind of go about doing this and where that money is going to come from. I'm overall really excited for this. As you said, like we need more diverse developers in crypto, in tech, and Bitcoin is a perfect network. Anyone can join. You just need a little push and glad to see that coming from somewhere.
1: I wonder if Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z are focusing on education because the other project he has is in Brooklyn, New York, in Marcy, where he's from. And I think it's a 12 week educational program that he's launching there. I was reading an article in The Guardian, I think it was last month, where people were saying, well, I don't know why we need this program here. I already don't make that much money, so why would I put it into something where I'm going to lose that money? And I think the education has to be something that's long-term. I think, especially when you're living um, at the poverty line or or below it, the average household income people in the Marcy Project, I think was at like $24,000. I think when you're dealing with people who are really living paycheck to paycheck and struggling to put food on the table, the education has to be long term. I don't think it can be a 12 week crash course and then off you go to, you know, invest in Bitcoin or maybe not invest in Bitcoin. And so I hope that they are thinking about it long term. All right. So crypto and culture, we're talking about Tesla and Elon Musk. I think that you can't really get more on the cultural side of things. When it comes to Tesla, so Tesla bought all that Bitcoin, right? We spoke about it a lot on the show. Well, it turns out that they sold it in Q2. The electric vehicle maker sold 75% of its holdings in Q2 to boost its cash position, given uncertainty around COVID-19 lockdowns. Let's take a listen to what Musk said on the earnings call last night.
3: We are certainly open to uh, increasing our Bitcoin holdings in future. Um, So this should not be taken as some
4: uh,
3: verdict on Bitcoin. Uh, It's just that uh, uh, we were concerned about overall liquidity for the company, given COVID shutdowns in China. And we have not sold any of our Dogecoin.
1: All right, Will, what do you make of Elon's statement, particularly the part that mentions they didn't sell any of their Dogecoin?
3: Yeah, I like that little kicker there. That was a nice little add on because, you know, he was going to get some questions about that. It was either a tweet or he's going to say it there. It makes sense that they're doing this right. A lot of Tesla's operations are global. They have factories in the United States, Germany, and China. And so when you are such a global logistics company, you're going to continue to be hit by everything with COVID and supply chain issues. And China has chosen to continue its lockdown strategy while the rest of the world has mostly opened its doors. And that has hit Tesla very hard, especially with its factories there that continuing to need to gain raw materials from China in order to build the cars and then also building the assembling units in China itself. So it makes sense that they are worried about liquidity, especially when you're looking at like the larger market and you see that everything is tightening. Right. That makes sense. Little side note, this might just be like way too tangential. But I am curious about how this plays into his Twitter buy, given that he sold a lot of Twitter stock, dumped it into the market in order to be able to buy Twitter outright. And now he's looking at selling a lot of his Bitcoin for Tesla in order to increase the liquidity of the company. Those things might have nothing to do together, but it is interesting to see those not too far apart. Can I kick it over to Adam for your
4: take? yeah on the dogecoin thing to start us off it's interesting to note that for as much as bitcoin has gone up dogecoin is still up a lot like i you know again like dogecoin sat below a penny trading for years and years and years and years and it's almost at seven cents right now so it might be down you know to just 10 percent of what it reached at its all-time high last year but it's still if you're somebody who's been sitting on dogecoin for eight years like you actually didn't miss the boat just because of kind of the way that these markets are trading now as far as tesla is concerned i mean again like Elon Musk's company has been one of the biggest beneficiaries of the incredible bubble mania period that we've been in. If you look at how they're valued compared to other car companies, I mean, it's not even comparable, right, Uh, especially compared to the revenue that they do. It's all based on kind of these future expectations. So one thing about sort of the world of speculative finance is that the less real you are, the easier it is for you to be worth a lot more money than you really should be because there's no multiples for you to go off of, but once you really start generating, you know, funds, then you have to kind of, you know, you have to justify those valuations. Now, you look at something like Tesla, Tesla's getting increasingly more real. You look at something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin's still just about as amorphous, you know, and virtual an asset as one can get outside of sort of supply dynamics of it. So it makes sense to me that they would sell. Uh, it makes sense to me that they would take this position. I think not selling Dogecoin probably is just a joke because, but I, actually, I also don't know exactly what they're holding in their treasury of Dogecoin. So maybe it's not significant. Or maybe, you know, it's so significant, but they're real strong believers in it. I don't know what the answer to that is. Jen, what do you think?
1: I don't know. I wanted to ask you guys a question. Do you think we're going to see MicroStrategy sell any of their Bitcoin anytime soon? Completely speculative. According to his statements in
4: the past, no. Uh, I mean, I like, according you. to his statements no. in the past, no. It would be a pretty big walk back for him. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. Okay. It would be. Well.
1: That's
2: all I got. Can I I just butt in there? No, I mean, I love that he, you know, says, oh, this is not a verdict on Bitcoin. Uh, Given the situation, it probably isn't. But, you know, it is also Elon Musk. So you never know with the Dogecoin reference and and everything. I think this was quoted by The Guardian. He also said that a crypto is not something we think about a lot. It's a sideshow to the sideshow, the fundamental good a goal of Tesla. And the reason we're doing this is to have the day of sustainable energy come sooner. That is our goal. We are neither here nor there on cryptocurrency. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like a verdict on crypto if there ever was one. And I don't know, I think knowing this is Musk and what his rap sheet has been, I'm inclined to not read into the cell so much, but given Bitcoin and its proof of work, is currently at odds with the you know, narrative around sustainable technology and climate goals. I'm not sure. I think he is trying to say something, of course. I might be reading mm. too much into it, but
1: Jen. The tea leaves, suddenly, the tea
3: leaf parser.
1: I think especially in this industry, we often get distracted by the sideshow, especially when it includes crypto. But Elon's clear goal has always been for sustainable energy and going to Mars. I think he's been really clear about that. And so I think we get distracted by all these other things because he has his hands in so many different plots, right? But it's really kind of small fish when compared to his other very big lofty goals. But Adam, I'll give it to you for last word because I saw you rolling your eyes a little bit at me there. And then we can get into your story.
4: (laughs) You know, I mean, this continues to the Tesla story and so much of what Elon Musk has done has been to take these utterly fantastical unreal concepts and then to get them funded with incredible confidence telling these stories and building these narratives so again i continue to view musk largely through that lens but you know i mean people are people and i really got no beef in general okay but let's end today's show with a fun one at least for folks not holding nft world's tokens yesterday afternoon microsoft owned game sensation minecraft banned non-fungible tokens and blockchains from being integrated into the freeform building and adventuring game while minecraft acknowledged the potential benefits of introducing nfts to its games namely providing in-game collectibles and play to earn style rewards it also pointed to some drawbacks quote, nfts are not inclusive of all community and create a scenario of the haves and the have-nots the company said continuing the speculative pricing and investment mentality around nfts takes the focus away from playing the game and encourages profiteering which we think is inconsistent with the long-term join success for players end quote actually a decent amount more to this story, but we're close to the end of today's show. And I think that that's actually a really great place to start. suddenly, what's kind of your read on that and what's your take on their rationale behind it?
2: Yeah, this is interesting, but also like not surprising coming from the gaming world, I think a little bit. But the Minecraft statement says that, you know, some NFTs have ended up costing players. And I understand that NFTs are a bit of a hot mess right now, rife with scams and security issues, despite many merits so if this is in the vein of consumer protection i think that's fair but in terms of their the rest of their argument you just can't keep the metaverse out of a game that's focused on creative building for too long and the metaverse as we picture it now comes with blockchain and specifically nfts so the metaverse is already getting a lot of interest and and investment and interest in vr and VR will change gaming. You can argue with me on that, but (laughs) that's my vision. So in terms of like profiteering and speculation, I think it's about finding that balance of how NFTs can add something to the gaming experience. The resistance from gamers should be like a welcome pressure to mold the NFT landscape a little bit. And I'd like to also point out that, I don't know if Adam already said this, sorry, that Microsoft owns Minecraft they just put $69 billion into the metaverse. The post says that they don't have any plans on integrating blockchain tech into the game right now. So let's see. Sorry, Adam, if you already said that, I kind of zoned out for a
1: second. (laughs) Jen? I think that they're jumping on the ban NFT bandwagon just to appease to the narrative that's happening right now. I think at any moment they could unban these NFTs. And the point that's made, you know, NFTs are divisive and they're for the haves and have nots. I think society is like when we look at society, there are the haves and the have nots. And that has translated into the NFT ecosystem. NFTs don't need to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. They don't need to really cost anything. And so I think as we move towards that future and people see that NFTs just mean you own your in-game assets and you can do whatever the heck you want with them. Once you own those in-game assets, the narrative will change. And I don't think that this ban is going to be forever. I think they would be missing the boat on that. And I would just like to see a gaming platform or a game launch NFTs and not call them NFTs. Just tell gamers, you now own your assets. They are yours. And let's see what happens. I think that gamers might be surprised. Will, what do you think?
3: Stay mad, gamer boys. I like it. I think that we're moving from the (laughs) GPU world stuff. They're mad about Ethereum integrations and they're mad about (laughs) GPUs being stolen by the Ethereum miners and the transition to (laughs) NFT talk. So I just, I love it. I love the continuation of the anger from the gaming community. Stay mad. Give to you, Jen, as we close out.
1: All right. I think we're just going to wrap it there. Gamer boys, stay mad. We're going to be back right here. Same time, same place on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jensen Assey. Will Foxley was here today. Adam B. Levine and Sandali Handagama. Thank you for watching and we will see you tomorrow. Bye.
0: You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network.